Have you ever questioned if your child is autistic? Or maybe you know your child is autistic, but none of your providers or your child's providers ever explained why your child meets diagnostic criteria for autism. This episode is for you if you want to learn more about the autism diagnostic criteria. I'll break it down for you so you know whether or not you should pursue a formal evaluation. It also can help to give insight into your child. On this episode, we will review what is called DSM-5 diagnostic criteria. We are also going to talk about signs and symptoms you may see in your child, as well as how neurodiversity comes into play with diagnosis. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental mindset coach specializing in autism. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their families and have been in the autism field for over a decade. I'm the host of Evolve, the podcast where we have real conversations that are designed for autism parents just like you. Each week, we will discuss topics that directly impact your life, from providing psychoeducation about autism and neurodiversity to talking about your personal growth, well-being, and evolution as a parent, we dive into it all. Just keep in mind, nothing shared on this podcast is clinical advice, and you should consult with a medical or mental health provider if you need support. Now, let's get to talking about signs and symptoms of autism. All right, diving in. So one of the things to note right off the bat, this episode isn't intended to diagnose your child. I wish it was that easy. You do need to go see a you know provider, and we'll talk about who shortly. But this is meant to give you information on next steps. So again, maybe this is finding a professional, or maybe it's just helping you to understand how your child's symptoms show up, and so that you can have insight into how your child is autistic and how you can support them. So let's talk about if you listen to this episode and you are like, okay, I have been having concerns about my child's development and some of what you're describing sounds like it could be autism. What do you do? You are going to want to find a provider who specializes in diagnosing autism. You want someone that really understands autism in and out. Sometimes I talked about this in the first episode, but often we see young children, females, children with high intellectual functioning, they're often missed in diagnosis. Or if your child has a pre-existing ADHD diagnosis, that usually delays the age of diagnosis as well. And so by working with someone who specializes in autism, they're really going to know all of the nuances and they're not going to be looking for, uh, I'm going to do air quotes right now, quote unquote, classic symptoms. And what I mean by classic symptoms is what sometimes you see maybe portrayed in the media or when you think of autism, what pops into your brain. Here's the thing that we absolutely know is autism looks different in every single child. And so you want to work with a provider who truly is equipped with that knowledge. So let's touch base on who do you talk to if you need this evaluation. I always recommend starting with your child's pediatrician and asking for a referral. Keeping in mind that if your pediatrician is of the wait and see mindset, which pops up quite a lot, particularly for very young children, that you absolutely can still advocate for your child to get a diagnostic evaluation. You can also check with your insurance directly to see if you need that referral or not. And if you don't, you can go on a website like psychologytoday.com 
Or you can also ask your insurance provider of what evaluators are in network. And then if you are open to doing private pay, you have the financial ability to do private pay. Sometimes that helps to open up different options or get you seen sooner. So the pediatrician is going to be a referral source. Pediatricians don't typically diagnose autism. Sometimes pediatricians will refer to what is called a developmental pediatrician. This is a pediatrician, so they have an MD, and they specialize in developmental disorders. And so what I often see with developmental pediatricians is they use more of a triage approach, where if they're able to diagnose your child, meaning your child maybe has more overt symptoms of autism, they will do that. But if not, then they're going to refer you to a psychologist to do additional testing. This is where I often recommend Family Start if possible, is trying to find a child psychologist that specializes in autism, because then you're not having to wait on multiple wait lists, like first for the developmental pediatrician, then, you know, for the psychologist. So going straight to the psychologist so they can do that autism specific testing. The gold standard tool is the ADOS, the Autism Diagnostic Observation Schedule. But if you're working with a psychologist that really knows autism, they're going to have their approach for doing that. And then the other thing is other therapists, can they give diagnoses? And the answer is no. Therapists, whether they have like a master's degree, like a social worker, or they're a speech language pathologist, or an occupational therapist, physical therapist, they may or may not, which is an important thing to keep in mind, they may or may not mention that they're observing signs and symptoms of autism. I hear this a lot where it's like, why didn't my speech language pathologist say anything? And sometimes they're limited in what they can say. They also, I think sometimes there's this hesitancy to say like, Ooh, I'm seeing this because what if they're wrong? But you can always ask them. They might not be able to share an answer with you. I find it particularly helpful during that diagnostic evaluation to work with these therapists, though, to be able to get their behavioral observations. That's something that I standardly do in my practice because they've been working with the child. They've seen the child over repeated visits. Super important. I've said this time and time again. Your input is incredibly valuable. So keep that in mind. You should be viewed as an expert in this evaluation. I can get more into the specific process of diagnosis later, but I just wanted you to know where you can go as a next step if you're listening to this episode. Before we hop into the next part of this episode, I want to give a disclaimer. I am going to be focused on deficits. What I'm presenting here is the medical model of autism and how we actually diagnose it, which is based on deficits. Keep in mind though, when you're thinking about your child's diagnosis and how they're autistic, we want to emphasize their strengths and really highlight those. But having this understanding of deficits really is going to give you insight as a parent on how best to adapt things and support your child. As I'm talking, I'm going to use medical jargon. And my goal in this is if you're talking to your child's provider or you get a diagnosis, you can come back to this episode as an ongoing resource. And I think most importantly, at the end of this episode, we are going to actually dive into neurodiversity. So you can start to understand how your child's brain thinks on a day-to-day basis instead of focusing on the deficits. 
But I also know this episode is really needed because I get questions all the time about autism and really helping parents to understand how their child meets diagnostic criteria for autism. I think that gives you more insight into your child and again, helps you navigate and how best to support them moving forward. All right, so let's talk about the diagnostic criteria. So first off, what am I using when I'm evaluating or your child's provider is evaluating? What are they using to actually diagnose autism? It is called the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Health Disorders, fifth edition. Now, yes, you hear mental health disorders, you're like, is autism under that? It is. It is under an umbrella called neurodevelopmental disorders. We have things like autism, intellectual disability, ADHD, learning disability that all fall under that umbrella. And the DSM-5, we actually have, quote unquote, a checklist of symptoms that we are looking at as providers. This is really the main reason why it's so important though you work with an autism specialist is it's not sitting there and just quickly checking off things. There are so many moving pieces that we're going to somewhat touch on today. I can't go into it all. We'd be here for an hour plus and I want to make this as succinct as possible. I'm over here clapping my hands because I just, I get excited to be able to educate in this way. First off, with the DSM-5, we're looking at autism in two different areas. We have to have deficits in social communication and interaction, as well as the presence of restricted repetitive behaviors. With deficits in social communication and interaction, there's three criteria that have to be met, and all three of these have to be met. First, there have to be deficits in nonverbal communication. We're looking at things like eye contact, facial expressions, gestures, as well as how do those modes of communication coordinate with verbal production if your child has verbal production. Keeping in mind that your child's language level, we're thinking about it from a broad developmental perspective, but we are not thinking about it in terms of diagnostic criteria for autism. This is inaccurate information at this point. People will say, well, you have to have a language delay or my child had to have a language delay in order to have autism. There were parts of the old diagnostic criteria that was true, although not true across the board with this, is that your child does not have to have a language delay. The second criteria that your child has to meet is deficits in social emotional reciprocity. This is that back and forth nature. This can be in conversation, for example, if your child has language abilities, or it can also be in things like play as well. So really young children, we don't expect conversations to be part of the interaction and we don't expect that their language would be advanced enough. So we're actually looking at back and forth play. Rolling a ball back and forth, that gives a sense of reciprocity where it's like your turn, my turn, your turn, my turn, but it's an unspoken rule. And then the third area that we're looking at is deficits with developing, maintaining, and understanding relationships. So this is where peers often fall in, where it's like, you know, maybe my child doesn't have friends. And this is really common, I hear, like, because it's not that 
Autism means that there's no interest. Sometimes autism means there is interest in peer relationships, but not having the skills and the ability to be able to make those friends. So difficulty developing relationships and then also maintaining that relationship. So as children age, the, the social expectations shift. When we're looking at kindergarten, we see that kids, all of them are friends. They play cooperatively. Even in the like toddler and preschool age range, like they're still starting, especially as you move into preschool and kindergarten, starting to be like a preference for playing with certain kids. But as we move into about third, fourth grade, that's where we start to see that it's like the classroom doesn't play collectively together, that there starts to be certain kids that group off with one another. Sometimes with autistic children, doing the ADOS a lot, one of the questions on the ADOS is like, what is a friend? And, you know, I'll I'll be talking with an autistic child and they're like, a friend, someone in my class. And depending on where they are age-wise, developmentally-wise, is shifts how much we expect from their answer. So that's also that understanding part. How much do they understand about friendship? This can go broadly beyond friendship and peers. It also can be relationships with other people as well. For example, um, kids that are strangers that are very like engaged and interactive and want to give hugs and it can appear really cute at a young age, but we think about in terms of typical development, we often see that kids have some hesitancy around strangers or people that they don't know. And so broadly speaking, then we're looking at this from many different levels. I want to touch on this because I think this is a really important part that is often missed when talking about autism. And I don't, I don't know where, if I heard this somewhere, but it's something I have been incorporating in clinical practice for many years, is I talk to parents that autism is not just about what we call the quantity deficits. Quantity would be like, my child doesn't make eye contact with me, which absolutely can be a sign and symptom of autism. It also might be my child doesn't have conversation with me. Um, or it could be, and we're going to talk about restricted repetitive behaviors next, but my child sits there and flaps and rocks and doesn't engage with me in any way. That is more descriptions of the quantity, meaning we're not seeing the behavior at the frequency we expect for that child's age. But autism is also made up of quality deficits. This might be, for example, when we're talking about reciprocity, if your child has conversational abilities, it might be that they just have naturally learned that they need to respond to questions. And so what happens is that you ask them a question, they answer. You ask them another question, they answer. You ask them a third question, they answer. And that looks like reciprocity. But Truly, reciprocity is the ability to add to the interaction and be able to really also take interest in what the other person is experiencing and thinking. So returning questions back. And so this is where a quality issue might exist where, yes, they can respond and have a conversation, but it's not at the quality that we would expect for their developmental level, for their language level, or their age level. And so this is a really, really important nuance. There are things that could come into play too, for example, is pointing that feeds under nonverbal 
communication. And we see neurotypical children, they're going to point pretty readily. It usually starts coming in around one year of age. And Here's the thing, though, is neurotypical children, as they they progress and they develop, they're going to point to request things like at the cookies because they want the cookies. They're also going to point things out to show them to you, maybe, you know, an airplane or an animal. And they're also going to shift their eye contact back and forth between you and the object. And so for an autistic child, they might have pointing to requests because they're highly motivated. So it's not a quantity issue. They do point, but are they pointing at the level and at the quality we expect for where they're at developmentally and for their age? They're three and they're only pointing to request food items, for example. That is falling developmentally behind where we would expect them to be. And so this is where that quantity versus quality really, really comes into play. So broadly speaking, across this criteria, are looking at interest in peers. We're looking at play skills. So we actually want to know about what is their play like? Are they only playing with one toy in a certain way or do they have a range of play? And are they doing pretend or imaginative play, especially as we get three plus Plus, we should see that imaginative play developing. Even a little sooner, we'll start to see some basic pretend play in like two-year-olds. That becomes really important because if we think about pretend play and play broadly, that's how other kids relate with one another. And so if we're seeing difficulties with play, that more likely then means that they're going to also have difficulties with peer interaction. Also, imaginative play really is the foundation for many other developmental skills. Those are some examples and like signs and symptoms you'll see in terms of the deficits with social communication and social interaction. Really quick, actually, just because I want to mention this, I talked about facial expressions, right? In neurotypical children, we see a range of facial expressions. You are able to tell how they feel. And a lot of times with autistic children, not always. Keep in mind, all these things I'm describing, you have to have something in each of the three buckets, but you don't have to have all of these that I'm describing. Conversely, I want to give this caveat too, is that if you're hearing this and your child has one of these things, most likely you don't have cause for concern because we really have to have combinations of behaviors for autism to be diagnosed. Okay. So facial expressions, you should have a range. You should be able to tell what a child is feeling. And with autistic children, we either see more of like one facial expression for everything or more of a flat affect or some of the extremes like smiling and crying, for example, but not some of the more nuanced ones like confusion or surprise or anticipation. Like these are facial expressions that kids can and do make. We just don't see that readily happening in all autistic children. But Also, we're looking at how they share these emotions. So shared enjoyment is a really big one. So when the child is excited, do they want you to be excited with them? Or is it more they're excited, but they don't really care in terms of like how you react um, or they don't really seem to engage you in that way? So that's an overview, just real quick summary. You have to have deficits in nonverbal communication, deficits in social emotional reciprocity, and deficits with relationships. You have to satisfy all three of those areas to have the broad piece of deficits in social communication and interaction.
Now, you have to have that. You also have to have the presence of two restricted repetitive behaviors. Sometimes we'll hear about these as like stimming behaviors, but there's lots of nuances with this. So there's four different categories and your child has to have two of these. We have repetitive language and body movements. We have difficulty with change and transitions. We have sensory atypicalities and we have like intense, excessive, or unusual interests. So let's talk about some examples of how these all look. So it might look like your child flapping or repeatedly spinning or bouncing. That's a repetitive body movement. It may look like your child repeating lines back from movies or repeating the same word over and over again. That's called echolalia and that feeds under the repetitive language. It also could look like, like your child lining up toys. Um, or it could be something like, which might feed under excessive interest. It also sometimes can read under the repetitive um, criteria. And this is where, again, a clinician is going to ask lots of questions about this. Difficulty with transition and change. Maybe you can't change up your child's like evening routine. They always have to eat dinner before they have bath. If you change it, that there is some sort of tantrum or meltdown. Maybe it also looks like, you have to drive the same route to school every day. And if you don't, your child becomes distressed. Maybe they even notice when you change furniture around in your house. That would all go under the difficulty in changing transitions. Sensory, we can have like oversensitivity to things like noises or bright lights. Also textures, feelings, food aversions. Picky eating is really common. Not saying if your child's a picky eater that they have autism. But this could be if you see other things, signs and symptoms. A large majority of the kids that I see are described as picky eaters. I was a picky eater though, and I don't have autism. So just making sure you're not hearing one piece of this and being like, oh my gosh, does my child have autism? Because I don't want to cause undue worry or stress for you. Also sensitivity to clothes, like maybe having to cut out tags or your child won't wear certain clothes or they're constantly pulling off their diaper. As soon as their diaper gets wet, they're really distressed by it. It also can be things like your sensitivity to like pain, for example, or it can be like seeking out things. Maybe they're licking things or smelling things that are non-food items. Maybe they're visually inspecting things where you, they're holding something close to their eyes and looking at it, or as their cars roll, they're really watching the wheels spin. We might see not in the sensory realm, although it can be spinning of wheels, but again, if your child's watching them, that has a sensory component, but that's also a repetitive movement. So that gives a sense of sensory. And then the last area is atypical interests or excessive interests or intense interests. So this might be your child being able to list out everything about dinosaurs or trains or really, really young children, like two, three-year-olds, and they know all of their letters and their numbers, and maybe they're starting to read. More likely than not, they probably also have a higher intellectual functioning in some domains, but they also probably are intensely interested in things like numbers and letters that we don't typically see at their age. It also might be like in more verbal children, where they keep bringing up the same topic over and over and they want to tell you everything about it. It might also be like unusual interests, like things like being interested in lights or street signs or wanting to collect something in a really specific way. There are a million examples I could give you. And so I just want to kind of 
give you some idea of what different presentations could look like or what different signs and symptoms could look like. This is not meant to be comprehensive in nature. This is where you want to speak with a autism specialist who can do a diagnostic evaluation if you do have concerns. Also hope that if your child is autistic, that understanding how all these criteria come together, you might be sitting here being like, okay, Okay, like I always believed, or maybe even you hesitated, like, is my child really autistic? And as I'm talking, you're, you could be going, okay, I'm seeing this. I'm seeing how it comes together. The other thing that I wanted to talk about diagnostic criteria is autism is a lifelong disorder, meaning your child, when they are diagnosed, autism will always be part of that picture. And we're going to talk about neurodiversity in a moment and acceptance around that. But with it being a lifelong disorder, sometimes you'll hear people say, well, your child could grow out of it. And unfortunately, I'm hearing this like from parents who either are looking up resources or they're coming to me and saying, well, my pediatrician said, or my speech pathologist, or my OT said, and granted, there are some amazing, amazing professionals that I work with, but sometimes this misinformation floats out there. And that like, basically you can grow out of autism. That is not true. Autism is lifelong. Symptoms though can ebb and flow and early intervention, catching it early, supporting your child early. We see this from research so that symptom severity maybe decreases over time, but ultimately your child is always going to have this diagnosis. And that is where it becomes super important that we discuss neurodiversity. Neurodiversity is a newer concept. As autistic adults have been speaking up, and as like providers like myself, I've learned how to listen. I realize and recognize the importance of neurodiversity. And so the concept behind neurodiversity is that each person's brain is unique in how it thinks. Brains think differently. And with your child being autistic or suspected of being autistic, their brain is just thinking differently. I will say when I'm thinking about diagnosis in the moment of do they have autism, I am not thinking a lot about neurodiversity. But I do bring a lot of the neurodiversity conversation into my diagnostic feedback when I'm sharing the information with parents, as well as in terms of recommendations. And I really encourage parents that when they leave the appointment with me, I encourage them to keep looking into neurodiversity and educating themselves on this. Well, which neurodiversity, that framework and conceptualization of autism is different than what we see in the medical model. In the medical model, we are looking for deficits. We have to have some comparison to neurotypical children to say this deviates enough or there's enough of a clinical impairment to call it a symptom. And so... This is where it gets hard is as a provider and as a clinician, I absolutely believe in embracing neurodiversity and we still need to be looking at the DSM-5 to say, is this, you know, child meeting diagnostic criteria? One of the reasons that pursuing a diagnosis versus just saying, okay, my child is neurodiverse, which you absolutely can do. But some of the benefits of pursuing a diagnosis is it's going to help you qualify for services. I also believe it can help you to really gain insight into your child and how your child is 
thinking. But once you have the diagnosis, I really believe thinking of autism through this neurodiversity lens is going to serve you the most, and it's going to be the most beneficial for your child. So a diagnosis, what, what it gives us, what it clarifies. I always think of this example because I've heard this example from many parents of like, people will just comment, my child's a spoiled brat, or that I don't have control as a parent of my child. And it's easy from an outside perspective to give those labels. And it's so incredibly hard to hear as a parent, even if you don't have that autism diagnosis, you know your child inside and out. And you might be like, yeah, this is an area that is a challenge for them. And so I think it helps us to kind of shift our understanding that, for example, if your child, you're trying to leave the store and they are stuck on wanting to maybe line up items on a shelf. Um, and you can't and you're trying to transition and they're having a meltdown, it's easy from an outside perspective or even yourself as a parent to be like, why are you listening to me? Are they just spoiled? Are they like intentionally defying me? What is this big reaction? Versus if you can understand, okay, this is one of their symptoms of autism. This is how their brain thinks. Then you can start to bring in supports that allows you to help them with that transition, for example. Another reason is services. So things like speech language pathology, occupational therapy, physical therapy. You don't need that autism diagnosis. Although again, I find that it sometimes helps those providers in knowing how to best support your child. It also sometimes can be the reason a, a diagnosis can be the reason that a child starts those services. I think it can be helpful there. If you do any sort of outpatient therapy, like I do as a psychologist, ideally you need some sort of diagnosis in order for it to be able to be billed. And so having that autism diagnosis would qualify you for those services. Sometimes there will be also co-occurring things like anxiety, for example, and they're working on the anxiety. So your child might have an autism and anxiety diagnosis listed in their medical record. Another reason is the IEP, Individual Education Program Plan, is basically accommodations and interventions at school. That diagnosis is separate. So a clinical diagnosis of autism is separate from an educational diagnosis. But having that clinical diagnosis can help to justify that educational diagnosis. I will say it is not always a guarantee that if your child has a clinical diagnosis that they get an educational diagnosis. Happy to go into that later. Other things, I think it varies by state, but uh, your child can qualify for Medicaid based on an autism diagnosis. Like in the state of Pennsylvania, we have a waiver that any child diagnosed with autism qualifies for Medicaid, and it can be secondary too, where it provides additional coverage to medical expenses or something like SSI. Um, so it, again, depends on the state, but like in Pennsylvania, it is income-based, but having that autism diagnosis and that income range below the threshold can qualify you for things like SSI. I want to wrap this up and talk about, okay, you have the diagnosis. Let's think about it from a neurodiversity lens, right? And once you have it, again, it builds understanding. I also always say that the diagnosis is simply giving you the path to go down. As a parent, you have so many paths you can choose and the diagnosis can clarify that. But what you really want to focus on as a parent is supporting and promoting quality of life, as well as really emphasizing your autistic child's strengths. For example, if your child has a special interest, you know, maybe they love 
computers or electronics, maybe enrolling them in a special camp that really plays to their strengths. Another example is uh, to honor the communication bid they are making. They have a strength in how they are communicating. Maybe it doesn't map onto the medical model's definition of like, you have to communicate in these certain ways, but they do have a strength in how they are communicating. A good example of this is like a lot of times it's like, okay, but my kid's not looking at me when they're requesting. If they're requesting, they're communicating with you. They're trying to draw you into their world. Responding to that is one of the ways that we emphasize their strengths. And then also like if you know your child really responds well to preparation with changes in routine, like that's a strength for them really playing that up that when things change, giving them a heads up and knowing exactly what sort of language helps them to adapt. So those are some quick examples. This is something also that you can work with a therapist on. You want to find a, a neurodiversity affirming therapist to help you really do this and make sure that we're promoting strengths. But then also we can create some accommodations and some shifts around their areas of challenge. So to summarize, we reviewed DSM-5 diagnostic criteria for autism. We talked some about signs and symptoms you may see in your child. It wasn't comprehensive, but hopefully it gives you a starting point. And then we also talked about how neurodiversity comes into play with the diagnosis and how you can use neurodiversity to move forward in order to really support your child, that it becomes less about the emphasis on the medical model's definition of autism and more shifting into understanding how your child's brain uniquely things. I also talked about ways that you can go get that diagnostic evaluation, and I'm happy to talk about that in future episodes. So that is a wrap for this week's episode of Evolve with Dr. Tay. Thank you for listening. If you find yourself listening to these episodes and finding value, come join the Evolve Facebook group. Each week I record podcast episodes live in that community and host a Q&A after each episode. You get access to engage with me, plus you can connect with other like-minded autism parents. It is a community designed for you to feel seen, heard, and supported as a parent of an autistic child and introduces you to my whole family approach. The group is linked in the show notes. I will be back next week with another real conversation about all things autism and your family life. Be sure to hit the plus or follow button in the podcast platform that you are listening to right now. This will notify you when the next episode is live. Catch you all later.